anything bad happen to you when you were trying to get your children off to school? It's like, oh my gosh. Um, trying to get here. Some look. Did somebody? Did you want to? Do you have a story to tell? <laughs> trying to get here this morning. <laughs> um, it can be crazy, can't it? Trying to get up and out the door and get here on time. Um, well, my name is Tina, like they were saying, and I come from this area originally, and now I live in Chile. About a year and a half ago, well, about two years ago, my husband and I decided. Well, we went on vacation to his home city which is Temuco, Chile, and his dad and stepmom and um, uncle and lives there. And we, how long do I have before? A couple hours, okay. No, I don't, I'm not going to talk for a couple hours, but I just want have no fear. I could see the, oh my gosh, we're here for the long haul. Uh, but what time, I mean, really, what, like 10.30-ish? Okay. Well, we'll just see. Um <laughs> Well, so anyway, so we decided, when we went on vacation, we had been praying, long story short, but uh, we, he got a job offer, and we had long uh, thought that we'd like our kids to grow up part of their lives in, South, in Chile so that they could kind of know his family and speak Spanish and, and learn another culture, and we felt like they were at the ages where if we didn't jump on that boat, that boat would sail away and we would miss it. And so we took this great big decision, um, and I had a couple of nights of long wrestling and prayer, and I went, oh my gosh, okay, let's just do this. And we did it like 100%. We sold our home, we filled a container, we sold our cars, we moved, like moved. And then, not only did we move, we bought 27 acres in Chile, and we're going to have sheep. <laughs> I'm going to be a sheep farmer. I mean, really, who does this? Um, I'm like, this is, well, we might have horses too, but I kind of figure if I lose one sheep, I'm out a hundred bucks. If I lose a horse, I'm out a lot more money. So we're going to start small and go bigger over time. Um, but it's kind of fun. I mean, it's not really very fun. It's very hard work to build a house and develop 27 acres. Uh, we had to dig a well and I mean, the whole thing is just and learning another culture and how they do things has been really tricky. My husband is from Chile, but he lived out of the country for 20 years. So he has been like, do I even really know my own people? And he's like, I don't. So, um, and hiring carpenters that, you know, they're kind of shifty at times. And you gotta, and they think that we have a lot of money because we come from the States. And we don't. Um, and they... Um, and Chile is a lot more expensive than we thought. Gas is about $8 a gallon. Um, so it's expensive to live there, much more expensive than we thought. And we've had, so we could use your prayer, actually. I'm here to, to gather prayer. Uh, education has been very hard for the kids. The whole thing, it's been an adventure. And I think what I'm going to, and I'm going to talk about that in, in my message today, that following God is really messy and um, God does not, promise us that it will go the way that we imagine that it will go, but he promises us that he will be with us, and he will bring about his purposes in his time, and we kind of have to trust that in the middle of the darkness, right, and that's where we're at, so it's been a really big journey, and Susan had kind of asked me to put dot the I's and cross the T's so that you guys would know that I'm not like out of here from left field, so I come from North Shore originally. I, my parents got divorced when I was about 16, and I lived in this apartment complex like two blocks away from North Shore. And I went to Inglemore. And a friend, my church at the time had kind of fallen apart. And um, 
and I, it was a really dark time for my family, obviously. And somebody invited me to North Shore, and Steve Mitchells was the youth pastor, and Dave was, Dave Weed was the junior high pastor. And um, Pam was one of the leaders, and Susan was one of the leaders, and they swept me off my feet and helped me fall in love with God and his people in a really beautiful way. Um, I did not have to, this is a really neat story about the people of God. I did not pay for one single event my entire high school career. They paid for everything. And not only did they pay for everything, they never even let me know that I needed to pay. It was always just taken care of. Um, we were pretty broke. I mean, we were pretty poor at the time. Um, and I think they just kind of knew that I needed to be there and that if I had, to, if it was an issue, you know, I didn't have to fill out any scholarship forms that were shaming. Um, they just took care of it. And that's a beautiful thing. And, um, and then my senior year of high school, I decided I wanted to go on the mission field because I was not ready for college yet. And I heard about this ship called the Logos II, which is a missionary ship that sails around the world. And I ended up going on that ship, and North Shore sent me. And um, during that time, I met my husband, and Pastor Jan Hedinga came to the ship and spoke. And he met my hus future husband, and he said, if you guys are by any chance thinking that you want to get married, if you get married, I'll hire you to work at my church. And I was like, well, I don't know if I want to get married to this guy yet. So let's just not, like, you know, throw us in together before I say I do. Um, but we ended up getting married. Jan did the wedding for us. And so then Rodrigo and I worked on staff with Steve and Jan for many years. Um, and then I got to work with, with Mitch um, in a totally different way. And once again, he just lavished all kinds of love and kindness on us. And in fact, I remember the first time that we came into North Shore and Steve was there. No one could get my husband's name right. And they turned, he turned, Steve turned around. And he said, hi, Rodrigo. I'm Steve. It's nice to meet you. He knew his name. And, um, and that was such a kind thing. So I am so thankful that Susan invited me here today because I love all of you guys, and I love the people that God has put in your church to lead and to tend your souls. And I think they do a really good job. Well, why don't I just pray for us? And then we're going to open up to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> God, we thank you so much that you know our stories and you know how much they've cost us. You know every sacrifice we have made in secret. You have caught all of our tears in our jar in the jars. You have our names engraved on the palm of your hand, and nothing gets by you. You know that we are doing the very best that we can. And you know that we love you. And you take our love and you make it so much more. You take our little bits of faith and you use them. And you do great things with what we bring to the table because you bring so much more. 
And I pray that this morning your word would go out and that you would speak into the deep places of our hearts that stay hidden. And I pray that you would bless these women. Bless them, I pray. And we say together, come, Lord Jesus, come. If you do not show up, there is no reason to be here. We want to hear and we want to know you personally. We need to know you personally. We just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why don't you guys go to Romans chapter 1. We're not going to be there long. But there is, um, and I kind of forgot that you guys were doing the patriarchs. And wouldn't you know, God set us up. So in Romans chapter 1, there's this verse that I have meditated on for a really long time and has made me really, really think. And um, so we're going to talk about that and what I've learned from it. So in Romans 1.20, let's just go to verse 20. We're going to see here if I got my verses right. Um, it's that whole, you know, you guys know Romans 1. It's like the whole passage about the wrath of God. <laughs> Isn't that a nice passage? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And this is the verse that is starred. You guys... This is what we're going to talk about. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creator rather than the cre worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. So I thought a lot about redemption. And what it means to be redeemed. Because we have the story of Adam and Eve and how they fell and they got kicked out of that garden, didn't they? And they were, when they were made, they were made in relationship with God. They walked with him and talked with God in the garden, right? And they had the mandate to name, to do the naming. Naming is very, very important in Scripture. And they were intimate with God. And then they fell and we have the fall and the curse and blah, and all that stuff that we've all thought long and hard about. And we're so thankful to Adam and Eve for what happened in that garden. And what happened was they lost God. We lost God. We are born without him. And so we're told in Scripture to seek God, aren't we? To seek God. To seek him and to find him. So we have to find God. We have to find relationship with God once again. And we're also told, especially through the life of Jesus, that God seeks us out. My favorite verse in the whole Bible is that passage in Zacche after Zacchaeus where Jesus says, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. There's a whole lot of seeking in this Bible. And we're also told that Satan is seeking whom he may devour. So we have lots and lots of seeking. So, we lo so in the garden, they get kicked out. We lose God and we have to find him. 
And I think that this passage in, in Romans is a, is a clincher to me because I think it's exactly we exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. So I'm going to flip that and say, I think the process of redemption, what God does in our lives from the time we are born until we die, is he works in our lives to redeem us and exchange the lies for the truth. Does that make sense? He exchanges the lies that we believe about God for truth and the lies that we believe about ourselves for truth. And I kind of think that's like what he does, like all the time. So take Abram. Well, and then I find this pattern, right, in Genesis and all the Bible, actually. And I, um, of God. So in this, we, you know, you guys are studying the patriarchs, which is so fun, because Genesis is one of my absolute favorite books. I read it a lot. And we have this pattern of these people that follow all these different gods. And then Abram hears this voice. We have no idea how many other people heard that voice and ignored it. But Abram hears this voice, and he takes heed, doesn't he? He, like, listens, and he chooses to go a different way. He is called out. And there's all these stories, and I love the story of Abram to Abraham. We'll talk about that in a second. But there's this part at the very end. He gets this promise that he's going to have a kid, and there's, like, no sign of a kid coming anytime soon. They have to wait and wait. And I just think that is so annoying about God so much of the time. We get these promises, and the whole thing is waiting and waiting. And he waits a long time, so long that they get a little tired of it, and she gives him a slave lady. And, um, and, and they have Ishmael, and that's a sad story. But then finally, Isaac or Isaac comes, and then God just lovely God that he is says, go sacrifice him on the, on the mountain. And I'm like, God, you're just cracking me up. But what's interesting about that story is that that's what the gods of that time did. That's what they did. They, people sacrificed their kids to show that they gave allegiance to God. And so Abram, Abraham goes up and he does this because this is not out of character for the gods of that time. Right? And then God does something that just takes our breath away, and he provides a ram and changes that religion for all of time, forever and ever. That's when we became us. Because he showed him at that point that no longer do you have to provide the sacrifice to appease my wrath. I will provide the sacrifice. And no religion had ever been like that ever before. None. God provided the appeasing of God's wrath. He provided the means of escape. Man does not have to. And that set it apart. And then Abraham does something that I think is so pivotal to the whole of Scripture. And we'll see this pattern over and over. He builds an altar, and he names God. He gives God a name. And he says, this is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He provides. And that's what we do all through, that's what they do all through scripture. Because we lost God. We don't know who he is. We're not in intimacy. So someone has an experience with God. God steps out of eternity, comes into time. There's this intersection of time and eternity that meet. He builds an altar. She builds and says, this is who God is right here. 
He is not far away. He is not impossible to know. I've met him, and this is who I call him to be. And we see it over and over. We have Hagar. She's this little slave lady that no one cares about. She always makes me cry because she was invisible. No one cared about her. And she was supposed to be invisible in that culture. She was Egyptian. She was a slave. She was n- this is not the American culture where we lift up the poor and we, we, you know, say help the poor. This is the culture where that's their lot in life. We're not supposed to pay attention. They are objects, and they are to be used as objects. And she gets cast out into the wilderness, has nothing. She has this baby that was not her fault. She had nothing. I mean, it was not her fault that she had this baby. And she's going to die. She's going to die. There's nothing. There's no hope for her. And God comes out of eternity. He steps into that moment in her life. And he says, your story is not over yet. I have something for you. I'm going to take care of you. And your son will have a name. I will give him a people. It's not over. And what does she do? She names God. She says, you are the God who sees. He saw me. And we take that story into the deepest places of our hearts, don't we? Because we all have felt like Hagar, that we've been invisible, that someone didn't notice us, that someone didn't pay attention. The people in our lives that were supposed to see us did not. And God saw Hagar. And she said, you're the God. And we stake our claim on that, don't we? This is who God is. He sees me. We have Jacob and his little ladder. I love that part in Genesis. I laugh because he lays his head. Remember it says he lays his head on the stone like a pillow. I'm like, who rests their head on a rock for a pillow? What an interesting detail that Moses decided to stick in there. Lays his head on a rock. And he has this dream, right? And it's the ladder that opens up. And this is right after Jacob has, like, been totally bad. He's, like, this little trickster deceiver. I mean, all of us would be like, we're going to scratch him off the list. And he has this dream, and he is promised, and he sees this ladder. And that was really significant to them because that was a ladder that signified that God was not far away, that God is coming up and down. He is entering into time. I can find him. He is knowable. He is not in this other realm that is impossible to find. He's the God that I can know. And Jacob, what is he? says, this is Bethel. Remember that? The house of God. Heaven is not only the house of God. This earth is God's house here where I have been, right? And then we have, um, well, we have so many, don't we? I can't talk to you guys about them all. You're going to tell me to get off the stage. We have Moses, and Moses gets the burning bush, and he says, well, I'm going to do, well, I don't even, I really don't want to do this, right? He's been 40 years in the desert. It's been a nice place for him. And he says, I don't really want to go back. And God says, you got to go, and blah, blah, blah. And he says, okay, well, who do I tell them that you are? I am who I am. And there's another part where he gets the name, I am who I am. And he takes that. Um, And then, of course, and we could go on. There's more parts. We have Ebenezer. We have all these names throughout Scripture. They build these altars, and they say, this is who God is. This is who God is. And they claim it. They stake their claim. They name it. 
We have to do that in our lives, where God shows up, where he rescues, where he saves us, where he calls us, and we experience the living God in our time. We exchange all those lies that who we thought God is, and we say, this is who God is. Um, and then, of course, the 400 years of silence, where God did not do a whole lot, there were no prophets, and then Jesus comes. This year in Chile, I read the book of John a whole lot of times, and um, I thought a lot about that passage in John 1 where it says Jesus came and dwelt among them, which is that it means to tabernacle, really. It's like just to pitch your tent and hang out. Um, and <clears throat> I thought a lot about what that really means. And the Bible says in Hebrews 1 and Colossians, it says that Jesus is... An, in John 1, he's the exact representation. He's the image of the invisible God. Jesus comes and he steps out of eternity and he comes into time to show us who God is, right? I mean, that's like what it says. So I've said a lot of times, if there's anything that I believe about who God is that I cannot back up, in the person and life of Jesus, it's not true. And you could write that down. If there is anything that I believe about who God is that is not shown in the person and life of Jesus, then I do not believe the truth. I have a falsehood inside of me. Because Jesus is the exact image of God the Father. Now that is huge. That is revolutionary in our lives, if we really take that to heart. Like when Jesus says, um, if you ask God to give you a bread, he will not give you stones. If you ask God to give you a fish, he will not give you a snake. And I, in my nature, believe with all my heart, he's going to give me a stone. I'm so afraid to trust that he'll come through. I am. I mean, I have to wrestle through those, that sense. Oh, my gosh, I'm staking my claim on this. God, what if the bad thing is just right around the corner? I take this step of faith and, boom, it gets busted up. And I think what I'm learning this year is that, well, I'm going to talk about that in a second. I'm not going to tell you yet. You're going to have to just wait. Um, <clears throat> so one thing that I did early in my Christianity, early in my Christian life when I was coming into its own, you know, and I was going, I got to, like, decide if I really want to follow this dude. Um, and so I took that very seriously. I did not follow Jesus on accident. I did not follow Jesus because my friends were. It was a very deliberate decision, and I knew that I might die for it one day. It was like I, I have to decide, and I've got to follow this from the beginning to the end. And it was a very cognizant, comprehensive decision, and I've never turned back once. I've followed Jesus since I was 16, and I've followed Jesus pretty hard. Um, and I don't say that in any sort of boastful way, but I do say that because I think that we have to make, a, it, we are told to seek him and to find him. And we are told that he seeks us and he finds us. And it's a both. We both participate in this journey. And I take that very seriously. 
And um, so one of the things that I did early on in my journal, I got this spiral notebook and I read the Gospels like over and over again. And I said, anything that I think that surprises me about God or that surprises me about Jesus, I'm going to write it down. And I filled a notebook up of all the things about God that swept me away, uh, that I didn't like. You know, Jesus is very offensive. And he's very scandalous in a lot of what he does in that time period. And, um, and he does not mess with religion in any sense of the word. Uh, he just radically scandalized many people. And the broken and hurting were the ones that, like, you know, laid at his feet um, over and over and over again. So th- those things were really startling to me because by nature I'm someone who needs to find my list of what I'm supposed to do to be the kind of person I want to be and get the job done. Uh, and um, and that is not that's not Christianity. That's that doesn't make us good. That's not what it is about at all. That I might do my list and it doesn't move God's heart at all. That doesn't make it anything. Doesn't make a difference to God. He is after our hearts. Really, he's after our hearts. And all those things, of course, I think reading the Bible is primary and it's fundamental, but not um, in a fundamentalist way, right? It's not about doing what I'm supposed to do to fulfill my list. It's about knowing God. And so I, like, really like to read the Bible, but it's not religious. Does that make sense to you guys? Um, And, uh, yeah. So I wasn't planning on saying that, so I hope that was for somebody. Um, But then there's this, so I studied the character of God a lot, and I really, I asked God to help me understand his character in my life, you know, like show up and surprise me, and God does. Um, I remember early on, well, no, I mean, this has been my life, um, most of my Christian life, has been about God revealing that he's not who I think he is because, you know, I come from a broken home and, you know, we just come from brokenness, don't we? And so we have these false ideas about God because we're, we've lost him. <laughs> I mean, it's a fallen world and we've, we're finding God. And so it's this journey of finding out who he really is. And I got that. I mean, I just had all these false misunderstandings of who I thought God was really mean for a lot of my life that if I didn't perform or do what I'm supposed to do that he had, you know, the, the mama look, the don't you do that, the shame. I think that shaming has been a big part of the Christian culture and in my life, a lot of it. And God is not a shaming God. He doesn't shake his finger at us ever. And I think that that has been what he's been trying to revolutionize in my life that I'm not afraid of the shaking finger or the teeny, you know better than that. You shouldn't have done that. Or um, feeling like God is always disappointed in my performance, and he's not. He's not disappointed in yours either, ever. Um, So that's the first part of this redemptive process where God reveals who he is. And I think that's the one, one of the most wonderful parts of the journey is discovering who God is. And I think that as we set our eyes, we look up and we find God. We find who he is. It, it just 
scandalizes the whole world. You know, I mean, we're all just transformed by it. One person gets a hold of the who God is and the wonder of God, and it, it just shows, doesn't it? But that doesn't, God doesn't leave it there. As we discover who God is and as he reveals himself to us, he also reveals to us who we are. He tells us who we are. We have our little Abram gets his name changed to Abraham and Sarai to Sarah. He's a name changer, isn't he? He changes our names. Uh, We have um, Jacob, and I love that story. So he's like, I mean, so bad, this Jacob. So he's going, he's going to meet his brother, and he's scared out of his mind because he knows his brother hates him for very good reason. Um, and he's like, you know, we're going to go on this caravan, so he's going to put the ugly wives in the front. Isn't that nice of Jacob? Oh, my gosh. And the one that he likes in the back. I mean, how mean is that? Talk about abuse. I mean, gosh, I'm like, geez, wouldn't want to be Leah. Or the other ones, the slave women. I mean, it's terrible how they used people. It's terrible how we use people. Um, but God still does something. And that night before he meets Esau, do you guys remember what happens? He wrestles with God, doesn't he? It's this whole wrestling match all night long. And he wrestles and he wrestles. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I want what's mine. Bless me. And what does God do? Pops the little guy's hip out of place. And he never walks the same. Ever. Because you cannot wrestle with God and come out the same. But you will walk upright and straight and know who you are. And Jacob did. It changed him. And he became Israel. I mean, that was a blessing. But he got a hip. And I think it matters. It matters because God will not let us wrestle with him and not let us be changed. And it does scar us. It really does. There is this part where we come into that deep holy of holies with God and wrestle it out. And I limp. There's a change. I'm, it's different. <clears throat> we have Gideon. Love the story of Gideon, the little wimp. He's like hanging out in the little wine press in the garage, the back room, scared out of his mind for a very good reason. The Midianites were not nice people. They were very mean, very, very bad. And the angel whooshes in, and he says, mighty warrior. And I'm like, where's the mighty warrior? He's not there. I mean, Gideon was anything but a mighty warrior. He's a wimp, runt of the family. I mean, he's the one that everybody made fun of, right? And look what God calls him, mighty warrior. And then he says, you got to do a couple things for me you got to tear down the idols in your front yard. And um, God will never name us without also calling us to a purpose. He will never name us without moving us into a place of risk-taking, ever. He will never give you a new name and have it not cost you something to gain it, ever. 
That is the nature of our walk with God. We have to lay down our lives to gain them, to find them. And Gideon had to do it. Now, what is good in this story is that it also teaches us that we do not have to do it well. We can do it flailingly, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm scared out of my mind to do this. You don't have to do it well to get the job done. Really. And for all you women that like to have your ducks in a row, take heart. You don't have to have them in a row. Because he goes and he tears down his little idol at what time of day? Middle of the night. Remember that? Middle, I mean, the guy's like, oh my God, they're going to kill me. And they really were going to kill him. And he does it at night. He's not all brave. You do not have to do what God tells you to do well to, to do it. You just have to do it. And I think that frees us a little bit. Because then Gideon does it better and better. I mean, you know, he's like, if I really have to go do this, I'm going to, you know, the fleece, the fleece, the fleece. I mean, he's like totally freaking out. And God's like, whatever, okay, I'll just show you what I can do. But I'm doing this because you're such a, you're a mighty warrior. Let's get on the job, okay? And, and he becomes, at the end of the story, he becomes a mighty warrior. He became exactly who God knew that he was, didn't he? He rocked it, but it took a while to get there. But God saw, and I don't just think that, like, God spoke it and it came about because God said it. I do really think that God knit Gideon together to be a warrior. Just like if you listen to God speak to you who you are, he's not just making something up. He is speaking to the deep parts of who you are. I remember early on in my life, uh, in my writing, I wrote a book, but I, I write, and I remember I would just come out of ministry. I had my kid, my daughter, Emma, and then I got pregnant with Lucas, and um, I was at the lowest point of my life ever. My ministry job kind of changed, came out from underneath me. I didn't have a job at the church anymore, and it was done really poorly, and so I felt very wounded, was very wounded, and... Um, there were all these pieces, and I, I had been in ministry for many years, and I didn't know who I was without it. I had no idea who I was going to be without ministry, and I was very afraid of being um, a pastor's wife and not having anything else but that. It really terrified me of not having significance in and of myself. Um, and I was really, really afraid that... Um, my worst nightmare was coming to pass. And I felt like I had gifts and calling, and I felt like uh, the men were the only ones that people saw and that they didn't see me. And I was just supposed to bake the cakes and bring them to the functions. And it really scared me. And some of us are supposed to bake the cakes, and they're really scared that they're going to be seen. That was not me. And, um, and I... I was really afraid. I was really afraid. And I was really afraid that um, I had done everything that God had asked and he was going to betray me. And at that time, I heard God say, Tina, I want you to write. I want you to write. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I talk. I don't write. Um, and, and actually, God knew that I did write. Uh, I had always written. But ministry had sidelined that. And 
God's, God knew. And it is interesting because God had told me to quit my job at the church about a year prior to that. And I didn't do what he said. And then I lost my, my role in the church in a different way. Whew, that was a hard lesson to learn. And then I started to write. And as I listened to God tell me to write, I really found that I wasn't a talker. I was a writer. And then I liked writing so much more. But I had to walk through that deep, sh- that deep valley of, um, I'm really afraid that God is making me walk through my nightmare. And he did. But it was so that he could give me what I really wanted to be. And when we are in those seasons, trusting God to be on our side and trusting that he knows more than I do is the only thing that will keep you sane. Does that make sense? And we have um, David, you're going to be king. Took a little while to get there. Uh, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of wanting to be murdered. Um, took a while, but he became king. Best one they had. Um, and then we have Esther, little orphan girl. Hadassah, you will be ki- you will be queen. And the only thing that chick had going for her were her looks, right? I mean, that's all she had. We just and God used that. I mean, she was beautiful, but there was so much more to her than that, wasn't there? So much more. And it took almost seeing her people totally ec- genes- I mean, killed, taken away for what who she really was to rise to the surface and for her to move into her queenly dignity that was so much more than just her looks. And it took that big, huge thing for her to come into her true name, that she was really a queen. And she saved her people. Um, And we have Ruth and Naomi. I love the story of Ruth and Naomi because it's the story that our story is not over when it seems like all is lost. It's not. All is not lost. And God can still do. Not only can, he not just can, will. Uh, he will. And I like it because Ruth is told just to hang out in the gleanings. You know, just hang out with the people. Just pick up the stuff that the poor, the people don't want. Just go out and do a little job. Keep moving. Don't stop. And I will restore you to where you should be restored. And we have in the New Testament, it's like all across the board in the New Testament, changing names. We have Simon, who becomes Peter. And Peter is told, very beginning of the whole, on the whole, boom, boom, bing, bing, boom, you're going to build my church, and I will build my church on you, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That is Quite the declaration to have someone say over you. Am I right? I mean, can you imagine? And there was nothing in Peter that was deserving of that declaration at all. Nothing. God does not speak life and good and promise over you because you deserve it or you're like meeting the bar. It's because he plans on doing it. Right? I mean, that is that story. And then Peter 
completely is too big for his britches and does the most unthinkable thing and denies Jesus at the time when Jesus needed him most. And God still reinstates that little guy and says, you need to feed. I still need you. I still need you to feed my sheep. Interesting that Satan asks to sift him. Ouch. And that Jesus prayed for him. Remember that part? And he says, Satan has asked to sift you. Lord, God, help us. And I've prayed for you. And I'm like, Jesus, could you do a little bit more than just pray for him? And he doesn't. He doesn't do anything more than that. He does not rescue him. He does not say, be very careful. You watch your step. Let's go the other way. Maybe you better not come with me to the garden. Maybe you better watch where you're going like us mothers have a tendency to do. He says, I will pray for you that when it is over, you will not lose your faith. I mean, talk about not being codependent. I mean, the temptation, I'd be like, Jesus, you saw what was coming. You could have helped Peter out a little bit, but he couldn't because Peter had to go through what he had to go through. He had to see himself for who he was. God always knew it. He had to. Peter had to see that he was not who he thought he was in order for him to become who he needed to be. Do I think that God still does this today? Absolutely, I do. I do. I think that um, God still grants permission Absolutely. And I think that Jesus still intercedes and moves so that we will not lose our faith when we see ourselves for who we are. And and Peter still built, the church got built on him, didn't it? The original word that came, this is who you were going to be, came to pass. Um, we have Saul became Paul. And that's a cool story because Paul changed his own name. I think we can do that too. I think we can say, you know what? This is who I am. I've met Jesus. I know God. I have a calling on my life or this is what I'm supposed to, and this is who I am. I will not be this any longer. And Paul said, this is who I am. And he changed his own name. And we don't, we don't even really remember him as Saul. He's Paul. Um, I have written here, I'm like, oh, do we really want to go down that road? We don't have a lot of time. Um, (laughs) But I think I have written down here, God's ways are a little bit different than ours. When it comes to God naming us, because I've read, I read a lot this last year in the book of, I read John a whole lot, I read the Psalms a whole lot, and I read the story of Joseph quite a bit as well. And I meditated a lot on Joseph. And that story really bothers me a whole lot. Um, because Joseph had to go through so much pain to get where he was supposed to be. And, 
and it's hard. I mean, that abuse that he went through and all that he went through was so painful. And yet every single piece of that journey moved him to second in command to save a nation. We, I mean, God spared his life. He got thrown into the pit, and then the brothers sold him. Then he gets to Pharaoh, then he gets to Potiphar's. He gets accused of being a rapist and gets thrown into the dungeon, which I, I thought, God, why did he have to go there? Because he had to meet the cupbearer and the baker. And all that time in the dungeon, all that time in Potiphar's house, all of that was weaving in his character. And don't you guys remember in Psalm, was it 104, um, where it says, it's 104, 105. It says, I want to find it for you. Yes. It says that... um, Oh, yes, 105. When he, so God, this is the whole, it says, when God summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Nice way to send him, God. Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. When God weaves our stories together, there are so many pieces that come into play that we do not have control over. Um, people that do wrong against us, they, we have free will. We, but God is able to use every piece to move us to where we are supposed to be. And all of it is woven for our character um, if we are able to enter into the goodness of God and forgive and release and be forgiven. And that is very hard to swallow because we are people that will avoid suffering at all costs. And I agree If you can avoid suffering, absolutely. But sometimes we cannot. I had a very hard year this year. Um, We moved to Chile, and it's been very difficult. Not at all what I expected it to be. I thought um, I understood the people, and I did not understand the people. We struggled uh, far more financially than we ever anticipated. My children had a much more difficult time in school than I anticipated. I felt like I was hitting my head against a rock. I had to fight with teachers. I did not understand. They did not understand me. It was very, very hard. And I thought because I had said yes to God and obeyed and packed up that container and done what I was told to do, God would do what he was supposed to do and make it easy. And it has not been and I have had to grow up and learn, um, learning to trust God, even when it makes no sense to me. And um, 
there was a time when it got so difficult that I had to write my friends, two or three friends that I know hear from God very clearly. And I said, I need, I want to come home. I am done with this people. I am done with this place. I do not want to be here. This is not what I expected. Uh, my husband's family were quite cruel. They were not what I expected them to be. There's a lot of cultural things with daughter-in-laws that I did not understand, uh, that now I do. I'm glad I didn't know it before. I would not have gone. Um, and I and I was just treated really badly. And there's no getting around it, really badly, in a way that um, my people do not treat one another. And I it took me really by surprise, like whiplash. And, um, and I was like, I need to go where I'm liked. I need to go home where I, people know I like them and they like me and we get along. It is so hard to stay in a place where you are not liked and to hear God say, I need you to stay. I want you to push through this. I have a purpose in it. Do not run from discomfort. And at one point, I remember I called, wrote my friends, and I said, I kind of got to go. So if you think I should stay, you better pray really, really hard and get a word from God. And I need to hear it like, you cannot joke. This has to be God. And I have a really close knit of people that really have paid the price to hear God's voice quite clearly. And so they hear. And so I, um, about five hours, one day, two days, and I, about three words came in that were so crystal clear. Do not go. God will lift you up. He lifts up those who are laid low. He lifts up. You will, it will be okay. Your story's not over. This is the first year. Just hang on. And then my sister, who lives in Australia, who's gone through lots of her own things, she wrote and very fascinatingly sent me the exact same words that God had spoken to me about six months before that. Like, same thing. And I had spoken them to no man. Um, and it was almost like she caught, she like caught it in the air. She was like, I'm just getting something. It's like something about how he needs more time. He's doing what he needs more time and something about the number three. And I trembled because I said, that's exactly what God had spoken to me. I need you to give me more time. Because it takes time to change hearts. It really, really does. Some of you have probably been praying for certain things for a very long time. And some of you might be thinking, I'd like to stop now. God is not answering my cries, and I am finished with this prayer. <laughs> and he says, do not quit. Do not give up. You have to be like that little widow that demands justice. And ju the judge only gives it because he wants her to shut up. And he's like, that's how you are to be. You have to be tenacious. You have to be like these little dogged women that are like, I, you will hear me, God. You will hear me. You will lift my family up. You will break these generational sins. You will save my son. You will bring them into the kingdom, God. You have made promises to me. I have paid the price. 
There has been a very high cost for me to walk with you. Please hear my cry. And he does. But a lot of things have to move around for things to get done. He is not a magician that waves a wand. He is the God most high who works in hearts. Do not give up. You have to be dogged. You have to gather yourself up and push in to the storm. You cannot run away from it. You have to be women, not little girls. We are women called to a holy purpose. You have to press in. This is not a game. We're dealing with life and eternity. And I needed to learn that in a hard land. I had to press in and not give up. I, had to be, I have to be willing to stay when it makes no earthly sense. None. I do not know why I am pressing in. I do not need to know why because I heard a voice. And that voice matters more to me than anyone else's voice in the entire universe. I will do anything for that voice because that voice changed my life. We hold our line with all we have. And it is so easy in a culture of triviality and superficiality to think, well, this doesn't, it matters. You press in. You hear him speak to you and you move with purpose and dignity and authority. Does that make sense? Amen. Um, what else do I want to say before my 1030 is up? And it's up. Um, I think that's really all. Um, I think we're like, <laughs> well, we're done now. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? We could have some question time. Let's just lighten it up a little bit. Uh, no, I was going to say one little thing about this chili thing. I did hear from God just recently, and it lightened everything up. But it had been about six months since God had spoken to me. I mean, I read the Bible, and I got words from Scripture, but I didn't, nothing really supernatural or, like, out of the blue. He was quite silent, probably because my screaming was very loud. Um, but I heard him, and it did change everything. And I do think that as people of God, listening to God's voice is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. And of course, we test those words. We try them. We lay them. We ponder them. We wrestle with them. We do not act with you know, arrogance and go, well, God said this to me, so I get to do this. That is not how God works, and that is not how he will speak to you. But we do listen to him speak to us. And his word should always move us into risk, into faith, there will always be a cost. Always. Uh, but not really an, a heavenly cost. It's an earthly cost. You know, we'll have to lay down our reputation. We have to let go of our fears. We have to jump over fear and overcome. We have to... It always has to do with our, our self, the flesh, that has to die, right? The cost will never be eternity. The cost is always this earth. It's the things. Uh, but that is very, it's still hard, right? But it will always move us out of fear into, into movement.
fear has feet. I mean, faith has feet. Fear is like stable. It doesn't move. It just stands there frozen. Um, so when he, when we, and so when, but God spoke to me just the other day. Finally, like after a long time of silence, um, I even like, I was like, I think I don't know God anymore. I don't even know where he's, where is he coming from? And I, I read the book of Job a lot of times during this time. I read the Bible a lot. Can you tell? Um, but I did read Job and that end part where um, God starts to talk to Job and just says, I really don't know who you think you are, but I'm God, kind of laid me out for a while. And so I got real quiet. And then, you know how Job says, I thought I knew about you, but now I know you. And I think that is all of our journeys. We go from glory to glory in Jesus. And at every every move closer to him, we look back and say, I don't think I knew God at all. I really don't think I knew him at all. Because that moving inward to intimacy with God is so much richer. And um, I feel like that kind of happened because when I heard God speak to me a, a few weeks ago, it was so, I said, what am I doing here? And he told me why I was there. And I, it, it lifted everything. The clouds like parted. Um, and I was like, okay, I, I know why I'm here, and I think I, can, I think I can do this now. But I had to press in. I still, there are still so many things that don't have a lot of resolution. I still don't know what I'm going to do for my kids' education. I'm very troubled over it. I'm very troubled over the cost of living. I'm troubled over many things. But I'm just going to set my face towards what God has spoken to us. And when, if he releases us, he releases us, and we'll just keep going until... We don't, and I think that is really that walk of faith. Um, yeah. What time? Do you want me to pray, or do you want to take some time for questions? Yeah? Does anybody have any questions?